This episode is brought to you by Shares Post. Since 2009, Shares Post has been a leader in the secondary market for private company shares. With its network of 44,000 accredited investors and 150,000 members, Shares Post has transacted in more than 190 different private companies. Whether you're an investor or a shareholder looking for liquidity, Shares Post has a solution for you. Visit sharespost.com. Coming up on Equity, Spotify gets ready to go public without the IPO, Uber gets its massive secondary done, an expert will tell you how private market valuations are doing, and the NASDAQ hits record highs. Welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Katie Roof. My colleague Matthew Lindley is off today. Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief Alex Wilhelm is here. Hello. And our special guest today is Atish Davda, who's the CEO of Equity Zen. He's an expert on all things secondary, so he's perfect for the Uber topic this week. Oh, boy. Hey, folks. How you doing? Yeah, you picked a heck of a week to come on. I feel like a lot of the stories we've been talking about have finally actually happened. Yes. So it's a weird like culmination moment for this little show, because we've been talking about SoftBank and Uber for... Oh, gosh, Katie, how long now? Months. First up on that is this morning, uh, news was broken by everyone's favorite uh, newsletter god, Dan Premack over at Axios, uh, that Spotify has filed privately for its direct listing. Now, not an IPO, because it will not, we think, be selling stock in the transaction, but it will be directly listing, which means its shares will be available to trade. They will float, as it were. Uh, sometime in the first quarter of this year, which makes a lot of sense because they had some relatively onerous terms on their debt financing that they will want to turn off. So questions to start off with, are we surprised by the timing now? And uh, are we still surprised that they're going to go for the direct listing option? No. So I, I had sources that told me that to look for it in Q1, and we're in Q1, so I'm not surprised. Even more specifically, I got some hints that it might be in the next in the next month or so. So I'm not surprised by the timing at all, but um, I didn't know for sure that they had filed. And so all credit to Dan, um, who heard that they filed in, in late December confidentially. Uh, I, frankly, I wasn't even entirely clear how it works because they're doing something really different. They're doing something unusual here. I mean, normally IPOs, there's a process. You file the S1 or in Spotify's case, an F1 because they're a foreign issuer. And then um, these days you do it confidentially and then you reveal it about 15 days before your roadshow and then you do your debut. But there is no roadshow. Spotify's doing what everyone thinks they're going to be doing, which is a direct listing. They're going public without an IPO. So what do you think of that? Because you've, you've actually done business with Spotify. Yeah, so, you know, thank you for saying that EquityZen does have a business relationship with Spotify, and therefore uh, there are limitations to what we can dive into. But specifically to your question, you know, I think we saw this happening for the last 10, 15 years. We've seen Google, LinkedIn, Facebook, Snap, uh, you know, deviate from the standard way of going public, you know, for we saw dual-class shares, exceptional founder control. What we see Spotify doing here, in my view, is that we see a large company that a lot of people have been paying attention to for quite some time making a statement saying, we're ready to be in the public spotlight, which historically has been something that a lot of companies have shied away from. Oh, it's painful. It's expensive. Spotify is saying, well, I think we're ready for that. And as a, you know, as a bonus, we don't actually need additional money, which is usually what people do when they go public. <laughs> uh, and but that's free 
eyebrows because yeah. because yeah. Right? right like right why don't you want money right like so because it's so, a dilutive event you know typical IPOs you see 15 to 17 percent maybe 20 percent of the value of the shares decrease because you're issuing more shares yes. alongside selling some of the existing shareholders equity so you think this is about the pop uh, well, so usually what happens, right, is that you have an IPO, and by that I mean there's a roadshow. Company says, we're going to issue, I don't know, 10 million new shares, each of them going to trade within this range. Uh, and then whatever price they decide on, that's the price that gets agreed, agreed upon the night right before it starts trading. Right. And then the morning it starts trading, there's this big pop, which is when you and I usually can you know, get into these shares. What Spotify is saying is, well, the whole point of that roadshow is if I want to raise a few hundred million dollars or in the what Alibaba did was go raise billions of dollars. That was an amazing IPO. Yeah, that was a fantastic IPO. What Spotify is saying instead is we are actually making enough money. We don't want to dilute our equity. And what we want to do is something they've been doing in the private market for some time now is facilitating liquidity for existing shareholders. They're saying we're ready to do that in a public forum without diluting down the number of shares. So I totally understand the point about not going out and having a dilutive financing event if the company doesn't need it, because there's just no point in reducing everyone's share of the pie. But I don't know if I understand that in the context of Spotify right now, because they raise a lot of expensive debt. And so you don't probably do that unless you need the capital to run the business. And Spotify is not generally thought of as a profitable company today. So I wonder how that fits into the model of them going for the direct listing. And I have yet to come up with an idea that makes a lot of sense for their current situation as to why they would pick a direct listing over a normal IPO, other than they've already said they were going to do it, so they may just be going through with it. Well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've talked to so many different people in the industry, and I've gotten a, f a handful of theories, and, and some of it I was told off the record, so I can only speak to what I wasn't told off the record, but um, some of it relates, so there's a few theories floating here. One of it, it relates to the, the cumbersome debt terms, and some people feel like there was something in there that might have made it easier for them to avoid the IPO, but others feel like, in, in general, in the industry, there's been a lot of animosity towards the IPO process. And there's no question that there are some problems with the IPO process. But some of them felt like they didn't like the lockups for employees. You know, like in a typical IPO, there's there's lockups and employees can't sell their shares for six months, a year whatever. Uh, and then there's also sometimes a lot of volatility in the early days because the bank bankers and the market makers, although they'll still have to use market makers, uh, they're going to have to figure out a price somehow. That's, but, they, so but, but you know, that. maybe this is like a, a vote against uh, bankers. Uh, there's, I mean, they technically don't have to pay fees, but then again, fees are a percentage of what you make. So, I mean, they're not going to be making money from this, but it doesn't mean that they can't future they in the future they can do a secondary offering it's not like they are blowing their only chance of raising money so that's kind of the gist of some of the stuff I've heard but um but yeah I think that it's definitely unusual it's not they're not going to be the first company to ever list without an IPO but they're definitely the biggest one that I can think of um and it I think that it's because it's going to be really messy it's going to be really hard to figure out like how many shares to sell and at what price and all that because normally you have 
these IPO buyers. And those are seasoned investors, like institutional investors and other high net worth individuals that are used to getting in on the IPO. And they have a whole process. And it's definitely not a democratic process. We've talked about it before on the show. And your average person can't get in on an IPO. They can't get in until uh, after it goes public on the first day. It's the night before price that year is really the IPO price. Uh, but the reason they do it that way, supposedly, is because those investors hold, in theory, they hold the shares longer. They're not like day traders are not going to just flip it there the idea is that there's going to be a little more loyalty and that they pick some longer term investors it doesn't always work out that way but that's sort of the principle of it yeah i mean uh so there's there's a few different reasons why they do it but they say part of it is for stabilization and so that they're gonna miss they're gonna. This is a big experiment. Like if it were me and it were my company, I wouldn't want to be the guinea pig. Like there's no question that there are problems with the IPO process, yeah. but it's kind of a big thing where you really don't want to screw it up. This just feels a bit like the Google IPO to me because Google had this high-minded idea. It was gonna do. I think it was called. Someone help me out here. Reverse Dutch auction, right? I think was how they set this up. And their idea was to extract essentially the maximum dollars they could from their IPO and make it a bit more fair. You could submit bids for shares in the IPO, and then it was gonna be fine. And, again, I was a little bit younger when this happened. I think it was a bit of a chaotic mess. So Katie's point about guinea pigs seems fair. But I'm curious, how often do you see direct listings? Are they more common than we think? Or are we actually reacting to this maybe kind of fairly? No, I think it is fair to wonder why this is happening. Direct listings are absolutely something that tends to happen for smaller market cap, com- market cap companies. Spotify is a massive company, um, you know, from that respect. But if you take a look at, you know, I think, Katie, what you were describing was cornerstone investors, right? When you go through a, ro- a roadshow right before an IPO, you're bringing in more seasoned, mature public company investors, and they come in with a view that, hey, we'll continue to hold on to these shares because we're in- investing with the 10, 20 year time horizon. Uh, and if you take a look at Spotify's most recent backers over the last one or two rounds, you're, t- you're talking about companies, uh, you're talking about funds that tend to be crossover investors, they have a big pub- uh, public portfolio. I mean, DE Shaw, Goldman Sachs, TCV even, right? Kind Cross- of fidelities and so forth in the world? Yeah, the idea is that these folks are used to holding public stocks. And so if they already have the folks that are long-term minded on their cap table, well, then maybe they don't need to go through the process one more time to go bring them on the cap table so that they will help stabilize the price. So let's say that it goes well. Let's say it goes really well. Are IPOs in trouble? I've got my fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you may have a slight interest in that, but I think, Katie, you're, you're asking if this will take over for IPOs for other unicorns as well. I mean, if it goes really well, if it if it works out, I mean, I I have I'm not sure if it will. I think it's going to be a very complicated transaction. But let's say it goes in their favor and their stock skyrockets and then does really well in the in the public markets. Then I wonder, is this going to be a precedent? for other tech companies. I mean, there definitely is a lot of animosity towards the IPO process out here in Silicon Valley. A lot of VCs hate it, and we've discussed some of that before. And so there's a lot of things they hate about it. But, uh, you know, if this is if this experiment, it really is an experiment, works, then I wonder if we'll start to yeah. see some changes. Well, I mean, we, we've talked a bit about Chamath's... Um SPAC. I pulled it up yeah. here. It's called Social Capital Heterosophia Holdings. I mean, you yeah, I mean, they, they named it something like whatever it is. But the, but, the gist yeah. is it's a blank check company to take things public. And so we're seeing Spotify here continue to pursue its direct listing strategy in lieu of an IPO and in lieu of, I'm sure, calling up Chamath and saying, hey, let's put this bad boy to work. So my thought is 
Chamath has done something that doesn't matter again. But anyways, well, your point is that, the, he, that there's a lot of people who are anti IPOs and there's a lot of people who are brainstorming ways to go public without an IPO. I mean, really, all the VCs out here have a huge, huge vested interest in their companies eventually going public. And so they want to make it easier for their companies to go public so that they go through with it and that they can make all their money. Right. And so they're doing anything and coming up with any kind of solution to work with these companies to make sure they actually go through and go list on the public market so they can sell their shares and make all their money. Yes, and that is why liquidity is a whole thing. And speaking of liquidity for investors who are, in fact, vested in a company, I do believe that we had the conclusion of the most epic secondary liquidity transaction of all time, probably? Well, yes, that's right. And so Uber, we have been talking about that a bit as well. Uh, yeah, finally got done. Wait, it really? finally <laughs> got done. The Uber SoftBank thing that we've been talking about for months, it happened. Uh, and it was a big discount. I mean, it's a little bit of complicated transaction. I will rehash all of that with you right here. So it's Roughly $50 billion valuation that uh, the SoftBank and some other investors bought shares from existing shareholders at. They also invested $1.25 billion directly in Uber at the prior valuation, which is approximately $70 billion. So a huge discount, but in fairness, some of those are common shares. It's not all preferred shares. So it gets really complicated here. Some on of how the shares that were sold in the secondary in were In the common. secondary. Yes, that's right. Because Basically, it was existing shareholders who were accredited investors, uh, which means you have to have at least $250,000 salary or a million in the mm -hmm. bank, roughly. And th those could be anyone from employees to angel investors to whatever. So there were so many people that on Uber's cap table that they had trouble cap uh, tracking everyone down to notify them. They oh, had to take way. out newspaper ads just to alert people, and just so they can claim that they you know, made an effort to alert people so that they'd find out about this this opportunity to sell shares. So, I mean, if they I mean, it's possible someone was living under a rock and didn't hear about it, but I think if you own Uber shares, you were pretty eager to take some money off the table because it's been a long time that uh, people have been waiting for an opportunity to sell shares. As Atisha is well aware of, Uber is very strict and has been strict in the past about secondary transactions. So this was finally an opportunity. They had done a few buybacks but for most people, they hadn't been able to turn any of that paper money into cash. And yes, I do say that a lot on the show, as a Twitter follower pointed out. But but that's what it is. It's basically Thanks, it was Twitter paper. Follower. It was paper money, and they it like it was. It, but they couldn't buy a house with it. They couldn't buy an engagement ring with it. Like whatever people want to do with their money, they couldn't do it anything with it. Um, and so now this is an opportunity to do it. And so people decided to go through with it, even if it was fifty billion roughly versus the seventy billion dollar valuation. I mean, it, we're told that it was approximately thirty three dollars a share. And so uh, not only did they do it, but this was oversubscribed. So what does that mean? For so yes, along and are kind of curious. Right. So that means that. That a lot of people, a lot more people wanted to sell shares than they even could. Um, my understanding is that ultimately SoftBank in the collection of investors purchased roughly $8 billion, or at least that's what they were going for in this transaction here. And 
more than eight billion dollars worth of shares, significantly more than that, was up for grabs. And so But before the show we were talking about why that might be. And I was curious if you can kind of explain to people why there was some arbitrage involved with that. So why would people actually put up more shares than they wanted to sell? Yeah. So uh, you know, I want to be careful about using arbitrage, especially for the folks out there who are, you know, who are gonna click their button and say, All right, you know, I'm in next time my company does something like this. Okay, so I got him in trouble, so retract the word arbitrage. <laughs> yeah. So so effectively another way to think about, you know, what it means for the deal to be oversubscribed is that while you know between six and seven billion dollars of capital went from SoftBank and the syndicate into the hands of existing uh, Uber shareholders, there was almost twice as much demand for you know the folks that wanted to sell it. And you know I think you know Alex, the question you're asking is like, well, why was there so much demand? And I think part of it is that it's not uncommon when you hold a tender like this to uh, you know if there is oversubscription, meaning if there's more sellers than buyers, uh, then you tend to what's called pro rata everyone down. So if you have 200 shares that are, you know, that folks are saying I want to sell and based on the price only 100 can be sold, usually and it's not uncommon to have everyone say all right, well, everyone that wanted to sell however many number of shares out of 200, you'll get filled half as much. Mm. So if you wanted to sell 50 or if you said you wanted to sell 50, you'll get filled at 25. So, so that's say 100 to get my 50 and that can actually bolster the oversubscriber scribed number artificially in a way. Uh, yeah, so that's definitely you know a route that some shareholders take. Look, I mean, you know, if you just zoom out a little bit, you take a look at the the liquidation preference, which is the amount of you know protection that preferred investors have in a company like Uber. Uh, you know, shareholders, especially common shareholders of Uber, you know, I think are. You know, should just be happy to get a price today that's anything close to their current valuations. I mean, we're talking about a company that's currently worth more than GM, uh, that's worth more than Tesla, <laughs> and wow. I, I, I mean, not to not, you know, not to compare the old guard versus the new guard too much, but we're talking about a company that has ten times earnings. Uh, you know, a company like GM, and that's what its price is. I mean, Uber doesn't have any earnings to speak of. Yeah, at the I was about to say the Tesla comparison is great because which actually loses more money. <laughs> Tesla or Uber, it's got to be a really great race for the least profitable unicorn in that range. So I have no comment on Tesla or Uber from that perspective, but I will point out that SoftBank's pricing does seem to be comparable to if you take a look at uh, Tesla's um, you know, revenue comps. If you take a look at the price-to-revenue ratio, price-to-sales ratio of Tesla, we're talking about a $53 billion company that has approximately a 7x revenue multiple, and that's similar. Trailing, right? Uh, so that, that's trailing uh, 7x, and that's not dissimilar from what we saw in this particular deal between SoftBank and Uber. Now, are you using the $50 billion valuation for that number or the 70? So, so that's because this is what I wanted to ask is, is what are we going to claim as the new valuation? Because I don't really buy that the primary top up is enough to absolve the difference in valuations. That is a great question. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of the actual investor that, or the set of investors that actually cut the check. So if you're part of the SoftBank syndicate, what you really purchased was effectively, for approximately $8 billion, you purchased uh, shares of a company at approximately $50 billion post-money value. So the, the price that they experienced was actually 50, not the 70 billion. Sure, but the thing is, um, and as you are well aware of, secondary valuations are often lower, and that's partly because of common shares, and really, we actually don't normally go by the secondary valuation for company valuations, but what's unusual here is just how large it is. And that's what makes it different, is because when you have $8 billion worth of shares compared to the $1 billion direct investment in the company, it's hard not to give that some weight. And that's why an ex 
experts are not agreeing here on how Uber is technically valued here. But the bottom line is it was down for the secondary. It was down significantly for the secondary. But really what we're wondering here is in two years, or actually at this point, less than two years when Uber goes public, what it's going to be valued at in the stock market. Because what what this suggests is that a lot of people thought that they were that it's going to be valued less in the stock market than the 70 billion dollars because they in, they were incentivized unless they needed the money right away they would have been incentivized to wait a couple years and see if it goes up on the stock market rather than selling their shares if they really believed it would be worth the 70 billion if they really believed that it could be worth more than the 70 billion so it's not a huge uh, vote of confidence from existing shareholders to be honest but also I, I wonder if that's mitigated slightly by the time frame because i think you make a very solid point but the amount of time you've had to wait for liquidity if you were an early investor probably means you're willing to take more of a discount than usual. Like if you were just holding the shares for four years, if you've been an Uber for, let's say, for seven, you probably care a little more, so you're probably willing to take more of a haircut. Um, and so I'm curious if the current uh, average waiting period to IPO, which has gotten longer, will lead to more stiffly discounted secondaries across the board. That seems reasonable to me and not that silly, but it's bad for VCs who are buying in in that Series G round. Uh, who end up looking a bit silly. Well, what do you think? Because you know all about this with secondaries. Well, so, you know, I was just going to say, Equities and we've crunched over 200 companies worth of, uh, you know, IPO candidates' profiles, and what we arrived at were a bunch of quantitative factors, A, certainly being one of them, recent financing, who the investors are, what the valuation is, what, what revenue looks like. But then there's also qualitative factors. You know, you take a look at industry sentiment, which for Uber's industry seems, seems to be pretty decent. Uh, but then you take a look at the C-suite experience, and, you know, there's been some, some changes there recently, and we have a new CE. <laughs> <laughs> and then you take a look at corporate culture, and then you take a look at outstanding lawsuits. And, you know, I think that they're— Oh, this gets worse for Uber the more you talk. I'm like, oh, it's <laughs> fantastic. Corporate culture, okay, improving lawsuits, bad. Well, so, I mean, you know, I think, you know, we, we all see where we're headed here is that we turned— and I'll use a different phrase instead of paper money. I'll say monopoly money, which, which is kind of my go-to <laughs> here. Uh, you know, I mean, 7 to $8 billion of what used to be monopoly money has been turned into actual U.S. currency now. And, um, you know, I think that there's something to be said for that. I mean, the entire market caps of companies was invested into this firm, and the vast majority of it was in the form of secondary. So kind of going back to the question, like, what should the appropriate valuation be? Well, it's heavily weighted towards secondaries. It's heavily weighted below the $70 billion mark. Maybe it's not, you know, unreasonable to say, well, you know, I think the investors think that the actual share price there is closer to the lower end of that range, 50 to 70, than it is to the higher end of that range. Well, one thing that people talked about, especially Fred Wilson uh, a couple years ago when discussing SaaS valuations on a price sales basis, he said you should always have a premium for liquidity. If your equity is more liquid, it should be worth more. And we, he was seeing the inversion of that with private companies' equity being valued more so than public companies' equity. And he was saying, look, this is a disconnect. And that's why we had the SAS crash, crash of 20, 2016, because we had to rectify that a bit in the public markets um, and the private markets, for that matter. But this is all kind of fun. You know, SoftBank ruins everything. And uh, I think that one thing we've we've lost a bit of track of is how much money they're pouring around because this is another example of the, them using their money to change the way Silicon Valley works. Other companies now that are looking at software transactions, their employees might ask for this. There is now a line in the sand that this is possible. Uber is not the only company worth tens of billions of dollars that's still private. So I guess my question is, who's next? And uh, can we ask my IPOs instead, please? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, what are you seeing in terms of secondary market activity? How is demand, like how is the sell side? How is the buy side? How are valuations? Because, you know, it, go, it goes through phases where a lot of people sometimes are trying to sell their shares in startups. Then a lot of times people are trying to buy shares in startups. But how are valuations relative? I would imagine we're going to see other Uber situations like this where the company got overvalued or perceived that they got overvalued and a lot of people are trying to sell their shares for a lower valuation. So we are definitely in more of a bull environment right now, despite the fact that we just saw this massive secondary occur at a discount to the most recent round of financing. Uh, there is a big you know, shift towards private investing. So if you take a look at um, you know the number of deals that are happening, not just the dollar sizes, and of course, you know, when we talked about 2011, 2012, 2013 IPO environment, there would always be an asterisk, and we would always report numbers with Facebook and without Facebook. And it's a very <laughs> similar thing here, is that if you take a look at the market without taking a look at this $8 billion nut or WeWork $4 billion investment from SoftBank, it tells a little bit of a different story, because companies like WeWork, SoftBank, um, you know, Lyft, Uber, they're just, they're, they're obviously uh, the rarities. The vast majority of companies don't get that treatment. So when you take a look at the index, um, you know, what we're seeing is a much, much greater, you know, positive market sentiment. And if you, you know, it, you know if, if folks want to get more nitty gritty on the numbers, you can just search for private market sentiment and take a look at the graph to look at the full two year history. But we're seeing almost twice as much, you know, um, you know, ebullience in the market than we did two years ago, right before the six week slide at the beginning of 2016, the freeze of the venture thing. SAS crash. SAS crash. Make that a thing. <laughs> Hashtag SAS crash. I, but I can't pronounce it, is the problem. Hashtag SAS crash. But, but, you know, but actually, like, Right now, tech stocks are doing extremely well. And so, I mean, there's a there's an interplay here. Obviously, companies, private companies are valued relative to what people think their their market cap will be when they go public. And so I'm wondering why are so many companies waiting to go public? We always talk about this, but seriously, there's so many unicorns that are afraid to go public even though tech stocks are doing extraordinarily well. We have NASDAQ 7,000 record highs on the stock market for tech stocks. What, what's going on here? Well, one question is, how long do people expect NASDAQ to continue climbing? And, you know, we don't know exactly when it's going to have a correction, if it's going to have a correction at well, all. I can tell you, actually, because uh, <laughs> the president has informed me through a, a number of... of well, hang on a second. I'm going to put a trade on right now. Hold on, hold on. A number of well That's definitely going to be 100% accurate. It's verified account, so it has to be true. And he has said that stock market is <laughs> all due to his uh, status as president. We have three more years. So three more years of growth is, is in the bag. 100%. Guaranteed. <laughs> all right. I'm not going to take that bait, but I will say... No, that was sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just to make sure. Yeah. Um, well, you know... You know, I mean, I mean, I think that's uh, that's at the end of the day what's going on is that we see now, and you know, I think we've talked about this even on this show before. How you know the the market today is pretty different than the dot com era, you know, Nasdaq uh, market, and we see Nasdaq hit these um, you know seemingly arbitrary but psychologically important numbers like seven thousand uh, in terms of index value. But if you take a look at the quality of companies now than you did you know um, back 15, 20 years ago, there is a difference, and uh, you know, I, I would actually point out that there's a difference in companies even three years ago, especially on the private side, when you had a bunch of companies that were pursuing growth at any cost. And all of a sudden, in, 20, in at the end of 2015, 2016, SaaS crash and post-SaaS crash, oh my God, that took so much concentration. <laughs> it's um, yeah, to be able to, you know, shift the, the mentality and corporate governance of these private firms to say, well, we are going to pursue growth still, but we're also going to pursue positive unit economics. So, you know, talking about the private side of things, 
my belief, at least from what I'm seeing out there, is that you know there are some companies out there that know how to make a dollar twenty out of investing one dollar, and those companies are actually doing pretty well. And then you see the same thing on the pri- on the public side, and you say, well, not all the companies on the public side are actually you know shelling out numbers that are that positive. So if if I'm a late stage unicorn that's actually getting a decent amount, you know, a, a, a decent valuation in the private market, and I'm not quite sure what the next you know two, four, six quarter certainty is going to be on the public side. If I don't need the money, why go out there, be subject to second-by-second fluctuation in my stock price um, if I can just wait it out? And you're right. Everyone does say that about the unit economics. I mean, before, VCs were always focused on top-line growth, and then they're like, oh, maybe we should care about the bottom line, too. But the funny part to me is I still feel like they're not getting the whole big picture. And obviously, the VCs are very smart people. They all went to Stanford and Harvard and Wharton and MIT. Only Stanford, Harvard, Wharton and MIT. I mean, Our president went to Wharton, too, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. But Burn. <laughs> anyway, um, so so they, they right. In any case, they went to those. They, they went to those schools. They're some, they're generally smart people, but it seems to me that they almost have like a blind spot, like a deliberate blind spot, where they're ignoring what stock market investors are looking for. Because it's not just that profitability. Investors want growth. I mean, and. New investors, regardless of what stage you're investing at, from seed to public markets, you want the you want the item to grow in value. You want the company you're investing in to grow in value. And so, if the company isn't growing or it doesn't have a good growth rate or a predictable growth rate, then that's trouble as well. So, profitability in unit economics that's not enough. Like, no. there's more to it, and, and it's, it's multi-dimensional here. Snap really makes your point. I mean, Snap essentially was a growth story. The company had you know, within recent memory, negative uh, gross margins in its S1. And they were a growth play, and they have failed to meet that one threshold, and they've been whacked for it. Um, but I want to go back just a little bit to the NASDAQ 7000 point, because this is a historically fun thing to keep in mind. So if you're a bit younger, um, you probably weren't watching the stock market in 99-2000, which is fine. Video games were fun. The NASDAQ briefly kissed the 5000 mark, and that was a historical kind of moment because people kept that in mind. NASDAQ 5000 became a bit of a catchphrase for how extreme things got, how rapidly things went up. And if you zoom in to just that late you know, 90s boom, the stock market chart of the NASDAQ comp goes vertical, and it's absolutely terrifying. Then you can play a game with yourself called Zoom Out to All Time in any chart you have looking at the NASDAQ's historical record. And you'll notice that since roughly 2009, we have been in a bull market that has had just one pullback, the 2016 SAS crash, whatever the hell I call it. And we've been even going up more steeply in the second half of 16 through 2017. So Katie's point about growth holds, but I wonder if it's even more extreme than we'd think because you have to not only keep growing to meet the current standards, but if the market goes up, you're being repriced daily with the expectation of even faster growth. So it, it scares the pants off of me to look at this chart as someone who puts money into a 401k because I have a suspicion that I am not going to be uh, enjoying gains in a year's time from now for my current contributions. I would say just one more thing to add to that, Alex, is that, uh, it, you know, it, when you zoom out and take a look at that graph over the you know, 20, 30 year time frame, also take a look at volatility. 
right? VIX, which is historically the uh, you know the, the the best proxy for you know equity volatility, it has been at an all time low, and it's I mean markets have been relatively boring. You know, they go in one direction, <laughs> and if you don't look at it every minute and you take a look at it every week, you can kind of see the trend that it's you know going through. But when volatility is at an all time low, mark the the equity index values at an all time high. Uh, these are not times that we've seen a lot of times before, and so if you're a private private company that's actually you know getting a relatively good deal in the private market, and people aren't asking you every single second, hey, hang on a second, how much am I getting paid here because I don't have a stock ticker that I can pull up all the time and take uh, and and kind of exactly evaluate? Well, maybe you don't want to jump in. You know what seems to be what people have been calling for the last three quarters. Oh, are we at the top yet? Look, though, if you don't want to go public at NASDAQ 7,000, you are not going to want to go public at NASDAQ 6,000 on the way down. So, like, <laughs> so let's, true. It's, it's yeah. like an elevator. If yeah. you're on top of the elevator, you go up. If you're underneath the elevator, you get squished. And to use my favorite agricultural analogy, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. So go public, you children. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, come back next week. All right, everyone. We want to say a special thanks to our producer, TechCrunch's own Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. Thank you to Katie Roof. Thank you to Matthew Lindley. And thank you to you for leaving us that five-star iTunes review. That's Equity. We'll see you all next Friday.